This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm JP Tasker, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Thursday, December 21st. Toronto is the latest city to receive federal cash to build more homes. Will it make life more affordable for residents? Mayor Olivia Chow is coming up. And a nasty cocktail of respiratory viruses is spreading and overwhelming Canada's hospitals. The country's top doctor is here with a message to Canadians ahead of the holidays. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was in Toronto today with a $471 million investment in the city's housing. With today's agreement, the city of Toronto will fast-track 12,000 new homes over the next three years and well over 50,000 new homes over the next decade. This is the largest payment yet to a municipality under the Federal Housing Accelerator Fund, a program which requires cities to relax zoning rules to allow more units to be built in response to the nationwide housing crisis. For more on this, Toronto Mayor Olivia Chow joins me now. Mayor, welcome to the show. Hi, good afternoon. Thanks for being on with us. So in exchange for this cash injection, you had to agree to certain conditions. The city must allow multiplexes of up to four stories in all neighbourhoods. That won't necessarily go over so well with some residents. Are you worried about a blowback? No, not at all. We, in fact, started on it. Um, Most of the neighbourhood already have this, and we're going to make sure that it is across Toronto. We also will be... uh, doing something called the uh, Gentle Millow, which is on Main Street, six to eight story, uh, and uh, in terms of density, and along the big, big transit corridor uh, on top of subway stations or right beside LRT stations, we will be looking to uh, have much higher density so that we can achieve more homes and do it in a much faster way. The reason I ask is because Windsor's mayor has rejected some of the terms of the Housing Accelerator Fund. Drew Dilkin says he wants to protect existing homeowners. He doesn't want unbridled development in residential neighborhoods. Uh, Oakville, a suburb west of your city, is also dubious of adding all this density to residential land. Do you think Ottawa is being a little too heavy-handed with its demands? I don't believe so. Uh, The city of Toronto already have a blueprint to build 65,000 units of rent control rental housing. That came through our uh, city council just a month and a half ago, um, and it was unanimously supported. Uh, I think there was one council that voted against it. So you can see that the entire city council, whether which doesn't matter which councillors, where they come from, they we are united in believing that we must build housing, and we must build some of them in an affordable way so that people that do not have high income can also afford to live in the city. Because right now, a lot of young families are pushed to move out of the city. Seniors are worried, sick that they are going to get evicted. And, um, and people that have abilities or people that uh, their income is not that high, and they're finding by the time they finish uh, paying rent, there's hardly enough money uh, to put food on the table. And so things are, we are in the middle of a very, very serious housing crisis. And you can see the manifestation of it by seeing that one out of 10 Torontonians relied on a food bank 
in order to to eat. And that's how desperate people are because of high rents. So we must build a lot more housing. We must do it quickly. Let's dig into the deal itself. So the, the, the thing that you've signed here with Ottawa calls for at least 12,000 new housing units in the next three years and potentially up to 53,000 more units as a result of these housing accelerator funds. But the city's population is expected to grow to well over 3 million people. That's going to happen soon. And so to me, it just seems like this housing plan is just a bit of a drop in the bucket. Do you need to do a lot more than this? Uh, you're right, it's not enough, but we will do more. Uh, this is a very, very good first step. And uh, the provincial government has also uh, come on side with about $300 million of investment. So c- combine that together, we should be able to build a lot more housing much faster. Is it, uh, is it enough? Probably not. What we need to do is to prevent people from being renovicted uh, or evicted because of demolition. Uh, so, which is one piece that we'll be also working on. And that's also part of the agreement. We would like to buy some of the buildings that are existing right now that are, um, that are falling apart. And some of the tenants are being pushed out. Quite a few of them are seniors. We need to protect those buildings so that uh, we don't lose them while we build new ones. So there are different ways that we could deal with this housing crisis. You mentioned the province. Uh, The city council passed the new deal that you brokered with Doug Ford last week. That will give you some much-needed cash to plug some holes in the budget. But part of the deal is dependent on Ottawa stepping up with some matching funds. Has the federal government said it will come through with the money you need? Uh, Not yet. You're right. Uh, The new deal brought on $4.2 billion from the province of Ontario. But $1.3 billion of it... Uh, that funds depends on the federal government stepping up also. A, a chunk of it is about the funds that we need to house refugees. This coming year, we will need to, uh, there's going to be 5,000 plus refugees uh, arriving to Toronto. And they are already, a lot of them are already in our shelter system. And it will cost us $250 million to house refugees. We have the the biggest um, shelter system in Canada. So we need the federal government to step up and help us uh, shelter some of the refugees. If not, they're going to have a hard time uh, on the streets of Toronto. And winter has arrived and it's quite brutal to sleep on the street and already we have 300 encampments all around the city because it's just our shelters are just full so the 1.3 billion dollars that we need from the federal government to unlock the funds uh to to to, from the province Mm -hmm. i think we need to do that quite soon yeah so we need that to we're talking about 11,000 people in Toronto's shelter system each night. 40% of them, the best estimate we have, are refugees. So this is quite a large issue. Every member of parliament that represents Toronto is either a liberal or there's one independent that used to be a liberal. Do you feel like they're representing the city well? Have they done enough to get this cash you need from Finance Minister Christia Freeland? I hope they are listening not just to me, 
but to all those amazing people that belong to churches that have opened the doors, so all the very generous Torontonians that said, yes, we have room for you. I hope their voices, uh, their caring attitude can be reflected um, because uh, I remain hopeful because I, in my conversation with the Prime Minister, I think he gets it. He understands how tough it is out there. And I'm hoping that he could make a decision soon so that we could hear some good news. We, the city budget is coming up on January 10th. And uh, so the, we need some decision soon. I have to let you go, but I want to squeeze this in. What will happen if you don't get that cash from Ottawa? Well, we will not put people out on the streets. We won't close shelters. That's not who we are. Um, the $250 million is uh, 6% property tax increase. This is before trying to deal with TTC, uh, public transit, uh, uh, police, uh, libraries, community centers, clean water, and all those things that... Uh, we are involved in so it it would be very tough because um, we need to make sure life remains affordable all right let's leave it there thank you so much to the toronto mayor olivia chow thanks for coming on the show mayor thank you the holidays are just around the corner and health officials are asking canadians to get vaccinated before the festivities begin this as experts warn of a steep rise in respiratory viruses across the country. They say it's straining an already overwhelmed healthcare system. We want to make sure that our hospitals um, are kept um, as, as free to deal with other emergencies as possible. We know that uh, getting, uh, getting your vaccine regimen of both the flu vaccine and the uh, COVID-19 vaccine for the newest variants means that uh, particularly for vulnerable people, for elderly people, are going to keep folks out of hospitals, are going to reduce pressure on our hospital system. So I would really encourage people to do that. Dr. Teresa Tam is Canada's Chief Public Health Officer. Welcome to the show, Dr. Tam. It's great to be here. So flu, RSV and COVID cases are on the upswing. We've heard from emergency room doctors this week. They say they're overwhelmed. How do things look from your vantage point? Do you think our hospitals can handle this respiratory virus season? Well, the respiratory virus season is definitely well on the way. As you said, there's co-circulation of many different viruses, including COVID-19, influenza and RSV. Um, I think the activity is always a bit different across the country. But as sure as winter comes, of course, respiratory virus season starts and with this mix of viruses happening across the country and an already strained health system, uh, I suspect that many hospitals and emergency rooms are actually very strained at this point. But it does differ depending on where you are. Let's talk about COVID in particular. Just 15% of Canadians are up to date with the new vaccine. That's quite low vaccine drop off or vaccine take up has dropped off considerably what do you think when you see those stats i think um it's really important to um, have everyone understands that um, the virus has not left us it is continually changing which is why there's an updated vaccine for this season for the fall uh winter time frame uh, we're constantly monitoring any shifts in the virus. 
But because of this ongoing evolution of the virus, it's important to get that updated vaccine. We call it the XBB.1.5 because your immunity does come down. And we're really most concerned about immunity against severe outcomes. And that's where uh, our messages have really been trying to focus on people at the highest risk, uh, particularly those who are 65 years and older. In that age group, the uptake is around 42% at the beginning of December. So there's definitely still room for improvement. And you can get the COVID vaccine at the same time as the influenza vaccine, because influenza is actually rising um, as we speak. COVID politicized a lot of things, and some people would say it politicized public health and life-saving treatments. I was looking at uh, a recent report from the Canadian Pharmacists Association, and they found that more than half of Canadians have vaccine fatigue. Do you think that that is being driven by how governments across the country handled things like the vaccine mandates? It's difficult to know because as with any public health issue, it's complicated. I do think people are a bit exhausted. Um, Some people have just had uh, COVID, so they are not thinking about getting uh, vaccinated. Uh, Many people think, well, they've had several vaccines now, they've had COVID, they're good. Well, in fact, the immunity uh, does fall off. Um, So I I think it's a mixture of things. And I've also heard that some people find it a little bit more difficult to access the vaccine because during the pandemic, there were many special clinics set up, uh, local public health, you know, really had to up um, the game in terms of trying to reach people. Now the system is adjusting to have a more sustainable, sustained approach, which means some of those specific measures are not there. Um, But there has been an improvement in access, for example, at pharmacies and and other uh, points of vaccination as well. But I do think all of these uh, factors just sometimes make it a bit more difficult for people to get the vaccine. And in fact, some of the people that we've talked to also said, well, we just kind of um, too busy or uh, haven't got around to it. Well, I think this is the time to really sort of get around to it uh, because we're heading into a season where I hope everybody will be able to share some quality time with family and friends And often we will see an increase in infections uh, around this time of the year to a whole host of viruses. So I I think it's a mixture of different things. Um, But I think it is important for public health to continue to just provide the facts so that people can make those decisions on those different layers of protection, including vaccination. Let's switch gears to another topic. Your agency just released some data on opioid-related deaths. There are about 4,000 in the first six months of this year, and the data suggests they'll be just as high in the second half of this year as well. We're on track for the highest number of deaths ever recorded. What's driving this death toll? You're talking about extremely uh, perplexing and and, and tragic um, public health crisis that has been so persistent um, for a number of years now. And one of the key drivers is this extremely toxic drug supply that's changed over the years. So initially, you know, fentanyl um, got started in the uh, in the mix of drug supply and. And now it's uh, fentanyl or its analogs are over 80% of um, responsible for over 80% of the 
the deaths from and they're from the illicit market. So and the the illicit market keeps reinventing itself. There's combinations. There's combinations of really deadly uh, drugs. For example, um, since the pandemic started, we also observed an increase in benzodiazepines being added or mixed in with the fentanyl or opioid analogs. That is a really deadly combination. There are other combinations that have shifted over time and is increasing. So I, I, I think that is fundamentally one of the biggest issues that we're dealing with. Of course, there are many other factors because the populations affected have been experiencing uh, lots of different um, socio-economic um, and other uh, inequities. So it's really difficult to you know, get our head around this effort, but it has to be a whole of societal effort from every corner of the country and from every level of government and from society itself. As you know, conservative leader Pierre Polyev has been critical of the Safer Supply Program, which provides non-toxic drugs to those with an addiction. He says it's a failure, and he points to these ever-rising opioid-related deaths, you know, almost are on track for 8,000 this year. Does he have a point when he pinpoints safer supply as a problem? Well, I think, um, just factually speaking, the mortality from um, the drug crisis is fundamentally majority, vast majority, due to the illicit drug supply. It's very toxic. So we think that is a really key driver. And I think all stops have to be pulled, basically, to try and get through this. And any you know treatment, harm reduction, recovery, and prevention. There's no one size fits all across the country and across communities as well. You really have to listen and learn from the local level as to what the specific solutions are. But if you think about the fact that you know the the, the illicit supply is always seems to be ahead of where the public health response is. I think heading into 2024, we've really got to refocus on well, what else can we do? There's, there's a couple of uh, other shifts in the pattern of um, the, the the crisis as well. Um, I, I don't think that the saver supply is keeping up really with this this horrendous um, toxic toxic supply. So you're counteracting the really toxic lethal supply with something that is safer makes sense. So you have to collect data and move cautiously, I think, on this. But at the same time, some of the types of uh, drugs being used is not enough really to counteract the uh, parallel escalation and the toxicity. So I think we have to really come together again and think through this part of the response. But all the, the whole continuum of the response is important. Um, the other thing is there's a shift in um, the mode of consumption. Mm. So we, we saw a shift from uh, injection drug use to inhalation drug use. And some of our support systems, including uh, safe consumption sites, haven't quite adapted to that reality either. So I think... Um, Again, heading into 2024, we need to rethink some of these um, measures. And 
again, it may not be the same from the east side of the country to the west. The west end of Canada is most impacted by this illicit um, toxic drug supply. We're running out of time, but I want to squeeze in this question. It's Christmas season. A lot of people will be drinking over the next couple of weeks, cracking open a beer, pouring a glass of wine. But there's really a dark side to alcohol that we don't really talk about that much. We talk about COVID. We talk about opioids. But there was 3,800 alcohol-induced death in this country last year. It's the leading cause of preventable death in Canada, alcohol. I mean, this is something that we maybe need to address more. Politicians don't talk a lot about it. Public health doesn't talk a lot about it. Do you think people really understand just how dangerous alcohol can be? Yeah, I don't think there's enough public understanding. There's also a very normalization uh, of alcohol being part of your culture. It's always linked to social gatherings and festive seasons. And of course, there's a lot of marketing targeting different populations, including uh, when one year when I was doing another report on preventing uh, substance-related harms, these targeting of women, mm. increase in uh, alcohol drinking in, in women. And so the media, social media, the, image, it, the imaging of alcohol use is, is so pervasive. At the same time, you know, people don't understand enough about the harms. So there, there has been this new guidance on safer uh, levels of drinking. We're not asking people to stop, but be mindful and try and reduce if you can and, and, and look at those guidance. But I think that the part that many people don't understand, I think safer driving, safe driving, don't use alcohol and drive is something that has to continue to be persistently reminded and, and cannabis, cannabis use also, um, use in pregnancy, of course. Um, pregnant women have to be extremely do not drink uh, during your pregnancy but it's cancers people do not recognize that alcohol causes um, it's, it's underlying risk factor for a whole range of cancer that affects um, males and females and um, and then mental health harms as well and social and economic impacts that's why alcohol is at the top of the list for drug-related harms in this country. Mm-hmm. Let's leave it there. Thank you, Dr. Teresa Tam, Canada's Chief Public Health Officer. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Thank and you. have a safe and happy 2024. Here's to 2024. Thank you, Doctor. We understand uh, that many are concerned about the safety of loved ones currently residing in Gaza. It is unlivable. And as such, we'll be supporting temporary temporary residents for extended family members of Canadian citizens and permanent residents in Gaza so they can come to Canada and be reunited with their family members residing here. Ottawa has announced temporary measures that could allow extended family members of Canadian citizens and permanent residents to flee Gaza. But Immigration Minister Mark Miller warned the federal government doesn't have any assurances that people will actually be able to leave. The CBC's Rafi Bujikanyan joins me now for more on this story. So Rafi, what more did we learn from the minister today? 
JP, the minister acknowledged that this has been a long-standing request from Canadians and permanent residents here in Canada advocating on the behalf of their loved ones stuck in Gaza. He also announced another measure, namely that Palestinians and Israelis who have fled the war and come here will be able to stay longer by getting free extensions on their work permits or study visas, basically avoiding a scenario where they may have to return to an area of the world where the war shows no signs of ending. But he did also acknowledge that these extended measures for loved ones of those already here, well, they don't depend on Canada alone. Israel does control the Rafah crossing, and Miller did say that at the end of the day, it will have a vetting process in place, same as it's had for the Canadians who have come here so far, and that Canada is working with them, but they do have say in this matter. And what are people with family members still in Gaza saying about this news? There is some hope and also some anxiety among those I spoke to. The National Council of Canadian Muslims did welcome this news. I also spoke to Isra Al-Safin. CBC audiences may remember her as the Palestinian-Canadian who has spoken to us before about how her brother was killed in early October, mm-hmm. fleeing northern Gaza to get to southern Gaza, uh, leaving his infant son and his wife to uh, run away and be with uh, Al-Safin's parents in southern Gaza. Now she is trying to get them to come here. The, the, the news of my brother's um, uh, death, it's hard. And itself, it was a shock. And just thinking about that's going to happen again to one of them, I can't bear think of it. And... Um, at the same time, I have that hope that I'm, I'm going to be able to save them. Now, she did have a meeting with the minister today and spoke to me again after that meeting. She said that it appears the minister's staff told her they're, they're trying to put the final touches in place on how these special measures will exactly work, and then she'll figure out how she can apply for them. She, she says she's, she's hopeful that she will be able to get her family here shortly. Okay, and you'll keep us up to date on whatever happens next. Thank you so much to the CBC's Rafi Bujikanyan in Ottawa. The federal government is rolling out more funding to help address the housing crisis, this time in Toronto with a little challenge to the Ford government. We're announcing $471 million uh, in federal money that is going directly to the city, um, province of Quebec chose to actually match uh, that housing accelerator funding for their province. They're the only province to do that. We'd certainly love to see uh, the province of Ontario step up in greater ways on housing. Today's announcement brings the total number of municipalities receiving funding from the $4 billion housing accelerator fund to 16. Will it be enough to help Canadians afford homes? Let's bring in the power panel. Shachi Curl is the president of the Angus Reid Institute. James Moore is a senior advisor at Denton's and a former Conservative cabinet minister. Jonathan Kalis is a former Quebec advisor to Prime Minister Trudeau, now with Macmillan Vantage. And here with me in studio, former NDP MP, now vice president at Proof Strategies, Matthew Duvet. Okay, Jonathan, I'm going to start with you. So the Liberal government had been taking a lot of heat on housing. You know, I remember we were at the cabinet retreat in September in Charlottetown, and reporters were really pressing the government on, where's your plan? You know, you're, you're, the Conservatives are eating your lunch on this file. Uh, they've, they've got a plan. You've got really nothing to offer. And now we know 
Sean Frazier, the housing minister, has been all across this country making a series of announcements. The 16th today in Toronto, a lot of money rolling out and a lot of homes will be built. But when you look at the details of this announcement today, it's really not that many homes. 12,000 housing units are guaranteed, potentially up to 53,000 more. The city's population is going to hit 3 million. Is the government really taking this seriously enough if they're just touting 65,000 homes in three years? I think they're definitely taking it seriously enough, and I think you've seen a pretty big change since since the summer, since the cabinet shuffle, where you have a new housing minister, since the cabinet retreat that you mentioned, where it, it would seem coming out of it that that was the only thing they talked about. That was the absolute focus, and they've come out with what I would say is creative ideas. They've they've sort of they've thought outside the box. The accelerated fund is being used. They're leveraging it with cities across the country. There was the announcement last Friday, also uh, with Vancouver. The deal with Quebec is one that the prime minister mentioned today. And what's interesting is, you know, in the summer before all of this, he he may have slipped up. It was it was definitely not a high point when he suggested that it wasn't the federal government's responsibility to deal with housing. Uh, and he was attacked for that uh, from all sides. And I think he learned a lesson from that, one of them being that no matter whose responsibility it is, jurisdictionally, legally, the federal government has to step up because the Canadian population is blaming the federal government. And so they've come out and said, okay, we're going to put our money where our mouth is. We're going to start to offer cities, and in Quebec's case, the province, an opportunity to match, an opportunity to adjust how they zone, an opportunity to start putting shovels in the ground. And while, look, long term, it's not going to create houses tomorrow, new housing, it's not going to suddenly appear by snapping fingers, but they're on their way. And I think what you're seeing, I, I think you're seeing Canadians respond at least in saying, well, at least now there's a plan. At least there's action being taken. At least we're seeing where this is going, because that wasn't the case in the summer. Yeah, James, Pierre Polyev's plan is really quite similar to what the government is doing now. I mean, you look at it, liberals are giving money to cities that agree to certain terms. Polyev's going to claw back money to cities that don't agree to certain terms. I mean, it's really tomato-tomato. I mean, there's not that much of a difference. Is there a risk that Polyev kind of over-promises on the housing file and fails to deliver? I don't think so, because the challenges of housing Canadians is so myriad and complex in each market of the country. There is not a Canadian housing market. There are housing markets all across the country that are very different from where you are. I think the Liberals have politically played this well and reacted to the political pressures that they have. But I think there's a difference between lots of action and lots of progress. And so what we've seen is lots of action, which is politically fine, and the government seems to be putting forward some money. But again, context, and I think the average person knows this because 100% of Canadians in in the, in a five-year span are going to be renewing their mortgages. I think people understand the concept of scale. $420 million dollars. Uh, when the average housing price in the city of Vancouver for a detached home is well north of $1 million. So you start doing the math, you start realizing this is not a lot of homes. You mentioned a few thousand homes, 16,000 homes, something like that, if it's matched and leveraged and, and so on. So the scale is not that big of a deal. But the fact that the Liberals are up off the ground and doing stuff politically is meaningful. But I think a more meaningful, substantive reality is if there's a cresting and then an easing of, of interest rates uh, in the first 
first and second, ho- hopefully by second quarter of 2024, then people can start getting mortgages and we can start getting housing actually built and have these two lines on a graph crossed at the right point, which would probably be towards uh, you know fiscal 2025. So there's a long tail to the to the re-realization and renormalization of housing prices in this country. Yeah, Matthew, it does seem like Sean Fraser has kind of turned things around, though. Obviously, we're talking about some of the nitty-gritty details here. Maybe it's not that many units. I mean, maybe the money could be more, yada, yada. But he certainly kind of changed the political calculus a little bit, right, by having so many announcements and by just appearing to be very present on this file. I think so. I think the the line we were hearing in the summer when they shuffled cabinet was that they needed to tinker with communications. And I think overall... They were unsuccessful, except for Sean Fraser. I think he's the one who sort of, if, if they all the changed ministers could be performing that way, I think the shuffle would have been seen as much more successful than it was. So he's definitely been doing well at that. And I think what they've also done well at uh, and what he's done well at is sort of wielding the stick a little bit. Mm. I think that's what was, um, you know, this whole withholding the money proposal that Pierre Polyev had. I think putting their own spin on it by saying these are the conditions you need to meet. Uh, in Canadian politics, it's not very popular for the federal government usually to behave that way. But I think on this issue, because the Conservatives were so successful at pinning it on the federal government, regardless of whether they are the ones who deserve all the blame, because they don't, it's a shared sure. responsibility, and municipalities and provinces have a lot to answer for on this file. But but the perception was that, uh, for a variety of reasons, some of which have already been mentioned now. So um, I think he's done a good job at that. And um, the problem is going to be that will the perceptions fully shift uh, in time for the next election? Because the reality is we keep talking about the houses aren't going to be built tomorrow. And I think the housing issue is complex in terms of how voters perceive it because it's really become a pocketbook issue. It's how high is your rent? uh, What's your mortgage looking like right now? And in some cases, I think for some, not for everyone, but for some, it's it's a perception more than a reality even just because we're getting bombarded with that news all the time. So uh, I don't know if they'll be able to change the channel in time, and I don't know if he can do it alone. Chachi, we were talking a few weeks back, you and I, about how climate change has kind of drifted down the list of priorities and then affordability and cost of living are are kind of creeping up. I mean, they're certainly at the top of the list at this point. Um, how are what are voters, what are survey respondents telling you about how they prioritize housing? How does that affect their vote right now? Well, it's at the top of the list, and I, I want to pick up on some of the things that, that Matthew talked about, just in terms of whether once a perception is baked in, it's it's too late to change it. And James and I have had conversations offline, not on television over the years, about, you know, once, once someone has decided they believe something, and if they're not open-minded about changing their mind on that, there's there's no getting them back. And I think what we're seeing right now is, number one, housing is a number one issue in this country today. And that is not sensitive to jurisdiction. Uh, There are different housing markets, but there is one priority at the moment, and that is significantly driven on the back either of cost of living or on housing affordability. And in many cases, it's one and the same. The other thing that I note, and we're seeing it in other parts of the country, is that when, uh, regardless if it's the federal government or a provincial government, when we start to see governments actually take this file uh, by the reins and start to, to roll out different policies, roll out different regulations, and say, okay, look, look at what we're doing around uh, pre-zoning for housing, or look at what we're doing around housing design that will make it easier to get approvals. When we then poll, and the, the specific, I'm 
example I'm giving is right here in British Columbia. When we then poll and say, well, how do you think the B.C. government, the E.B. government is doing on this file in, in the wake of and in the face of all of these other announcements? And the vast majority of British Columbians continue to say, look, we're dissatisfied despite all of this. It is very much how do I feel about my own housing situation today? And no number of announcements will, will fix that, no matter how much the Liberals have been delivered, read, and digested the memo on communications or on meaningful action. And it's also how soon am I going to see relief? And of course, the answer to that is no time soon, regardless of where you live. So it, it may be, and I, I wonder and I question uh, whether it's even possible now to, to uh, unclog that drain, if you will. If people are, are, are absolutely of the mindset that this is a government that's failed on housing policy, how is, is any amount of course correction possible? I don't rule out that it is possible, but I think that's the open question for me. Yeah, Jonathan, let's drill down into some of the numbers here quickly. I, I want to talk to you about millennials. Full disclosure, I'm a millennial. Okay, just get that on the table. But millennials, prime home buying age. You know, a lot of folks in my generation want to start to buy a home now. And if you look at the Abacus poll, I'm not to not taking anything away from Shachi's numbers, Angus Reid, but an abacus poll recently showed the Conservatives have a 17-point lead among people between the ages of 30 and 44. So those are the folks that, that want a home. And maybe they're voicing their frustration in these polls. Uh, and, and is that something the Liberals should be worried about, that they've lost now the largest voting bloc? Well, of course they should be worried. Um, I mean, the caveat that younger voters are less likely to vote is... Yeah. Secondary, I think the key is that they're losing where they had the most motivated voters eight years ago. But what I found interesting in the last few days is the Prime Minister does his end-of-year uh, interviews, both in print and in, and in, well, on radio and on TV, and I don't want to scoop Monday's interview with Rosie, but, you know, he's talked about millennials. People who voted for him for the first time in 2015 was their first vote. And now they're in their late 20s or mid to late 20s, and they're the ones potentially buying homes and finding out that they can't. And so I think he's understanding he has a millennial as the housing minister, and he's sending him out to have that conversation. So no, no communication is going to solve the problem. But I think there's a different message. There's a different messenger, and there's a different way of presenting the issue. Uh, at the end of the day, James was talking about the two lines, you know, as interest rates will come down and housing starts will go up. Will that, when will that happen? What's the timeline? What's, what's the amount of time they have to unclog the drain, to, to steal your analogy, Shachi? Um, so that before there's an election, and if the next election's in 2025, can they start to see progress where people actually feel it? And that's the unknown right now, because we don't know where that exact you know, crossing of those two lines is going to happen. Yeah, James, just really quickly to you, I wanted to squeeze this in. Pierre Polyev, interestingly enough, this week linked immigration numbers to housing starts. Do you think that that's smart public policy, or is that something that could come back to bite him? Could he be branded a nativist for even raising immigration when it comes to this issue? No, it's a fundamental ingredient. I mean, you, if you're welcoming in a million new Canadians per year and your housing stock is not coming anywhere close to even meeting a quarter of that demanded capacity, um, then you have to have a conversation. I mean, this is not Pierre Polyev, by the way. David Eby talked about this. He was on a podcast with Paul Wells, and he said, look, in, in one calendar year, the cities of Coquitlam and Port Coquitlam, which is say cl close to 200,000 people, were just dropped into the lower mainland. And then we have to have the associated infrastructure, housing, schools, a hospital space, emergency capacity, emergency services, policing services. You can't just drop in 
you know, 150, 200,000 people into the lower mainland without having a knock-on effect on all kinds of things. It's a perfectly reasonable conversation. I think the tragedy would be if we can't have reasonable conversations and people then try to exploit that entirely legitimate topic for public conversation and say that you're somehow anti-immigrant or racist or intolerant of, of new Canadians. I think if politics veers that way, which liberals will have every temptation and, and hopefully not, and but will not find the gall to do it. I think that would be really tragedy, tragic for the future of uh, public policy discourse in this country. But I entirely expect it to happen. Okay, let's. I think we're already there. Yeah. All right. Thank you to the power panel: Jonathan Kalis, James Moore, Matthew Dubay, and Shachi Curl. Thank you so much, guys. Nice to see you all. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern. I'm J.P. Tasker. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.